Man, so this was a heavy book that we just covered. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't mention this when we were setting up. I like don't really want to talk about this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of things in here that I do think are really I know, interesting no, and relevant. I, it's just it's like some of the examples were were really heavy, and I, Adil's not joining us on this one, but he told me he actually read it. Well, read it in air quotes uh, by audiobook on a cross country drive, and this is one of those books that I feel like I would have quit if it was an audiobook. Yeah. Because you I, I can't easily skip forward, right? In an audiobook. Whereas no. in this one, like when we're reading the book, if he because he has like a lot of examples of people that he's seen, patients he's seen. And, you know, after a few of them, the stories are just like tough. Yeah. To it, get through. It's really tough. Yeah. Also, yeah, I I mean, it's obviously a very important book. I, I've been thinking more about like what books do and why books are popular. And we talked about this with the great book series where some of those books are great and important purely because of what they tell us about history, right? Like the play Agamemnon, you know, it, yeah. it's a good play and all of that, but it's also important for like providing historical information. And then, uh, and so one of the questions reading a book is like, what is it doing? And the the thing that I think is interesting about this book is that it, Definitely. And the book we're talking about is The Body Keeps the Score for anyone who doesn't yeah. know yet. But, uh, you know, it it really changed the discourse and the dialogue around trauma and some of the symptoms of trauma. And it it did a really good job of that. But the book is very, like, confusingly laid out. Did you feel that way? I, I agree. I think the other thing before we get into that part, the other yeah. thing that it it was important that it did was I think it also poked some holes in the way that people think about mental health. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that like, I think at least a few years ago, it was very widely mainstream accepted like, oh, it's a chemical imbalance. Like, that's right. the problem. And that's what we're treating. And even in just the intro, he kind of like tears that apart. Yeah. Um, and is like, because of the way the incentive structures work, we always focus on drug related therapies and cures and there's no money in, you know, dance as a therapy or like yoga or breathing as a therapy. And I thought that was really important that somebody, you know, who's a very prominent researcher is just kind of like destroying that in a mainstream popular book. I thought that was it's cool. really, it's really interesting. The whole chemical imbalance theory, how popular that is when for, for all the evidence I've seen, it seems like it was mostly popularized by drug companies. And that's kind yeah, of what which he's makes saying sense. here too. Yeah, which makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's a, you know, you just need another chemical to balance it out, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, guess yeah, what? We, we have, have one for you. It. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We, I know we talked about that before. I don't remember which book, maybe Merchants of Doubt, but... Yeah, it's, uh, it, you're, you're, one. Yeah, you're right that that was the other kind of big thing that it did, but... Yeah, and also yeah, that I mean, the trauma sits in your body differently than... Like, you know, this is something I think we haven't talked about on the podcast, but I think we've talked about individually with each other is just the whole, like, the way that we think about health traditionally was very sort of like individual buckets. Like, oh, this happens in your brain and this happens in your stomach and this happens in yeah. your muscles. It's like, it's really a complex system. And it's interesting, like a lot of the anecdotes even that he shares of the brain and body connection how they're not really two discrete different things like they're really mm -hmm. connected like one example that just stuck out in my head was when he was talking about people writing about their trauma versus writing in everyday life and how the handwriting changed yeah 
Like it almost looked like two different people totally. from just handwriting. And that's, it's just so interesting that, you know, we would never, if we're thinking discreetly as these like, oh, this is your brain, how that's affected by mental health. And this is your handwriting. Like you wouldn't think of those necessarily as being connected. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the the book does fit into a couple of broad themes we've touched on a lot in the podcast. And one is this movement away from mind-body dualism. Yeah, where, that's the right term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where, where people think that like, oh, the mind is one thing and the body is another. Or like the mind is one thing and the brain is another thing, right? And it's like the there clearly is no separate mind, right? And that takes you to yeah. a lot of weird places, right? Like, okay, maybe there's not really free will the way we think of it. And everything is kind of, you know, at least somewhat deterministic to some degree. But at least getting out of the idea that like, oh, your mind is something that control your body. It's like, no, 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 no. Like your, your mind is mostly along for the ride. Yeah. And or your conscious <laughs> like, mind. Yeah. Your like, conscious yeah. mind anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, so much of what you think and feel is is following from and reacting to things that are happening in your body and so these you know incredibly traumatic events can change how your mind is processing things for your entire life right like that that obviously is a huge theme and then there's also this theme skeuomorphism isn't the right term but it's adjacent to that of the way we describe our body and our minds like throughout history often reflects the technology of the time. Mm. So when, when like steam engines were invented, people started describing the brain and the body as like a giant steam engine, right? And like, you know, it, it needed energy and it output power. And then obviously you know, computers become big. And now we describe the mind as like a computer, right? And, yeah. and to some degree inherent in all of those analogies is some assumption of it as like this, like data processing, logical, entity and this book and and others are sort of saying like no you know it's it's a more like organic bottom up emergent thing or is almost like more go to lecture baki right like we we can't describe it it kind of like emerges and if geb is talking about intelligence as an emergent phenomenon this is almost like emotion and feelings are like an emergent phenomenon from your body and if some part of that system is broken especially early on in life maybe i'm not supposed to use the word broken but i, I don't know uh no affected or damaged affected or, impacted yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly uh then the emotion that emerges is going to be necessarily impacted like forever yeah and i think a less dramatic dramatic maybe is, is not uh, a nice way to put it but less like a severe example of a similar thing happening is this ha- like i've at least anecdotally seen this with athletes where if you get a certain injury, you know, you stop playing as recklessly or you stop playing as Mm. fearlessly as you did before. And it's like one, it's hard to even like, they know that they need to do this, right. Or like get out of their head or whatever, but it's, it's a lot easier said than done. And it's just like your body just doesn't want to. And when it's, see, these, even these terms are hard to use. It's like your body doesn't want to do it, but it's really, at some level, it's your nervous system, whether that's in your brain, your spine, wherever the nervous yeah. system is located in your body, which I think it's distributed, at least is my opinion on it. Like it might be concentrated in your brain. That's how I like to think about it. The nervous system where it's like yeah. concentrated in your brain, but there's a major component in your spine, a major component in your gut. And then it's sort of like almost like tails off as you get to like limbs and stuff, but it doesn't, totally. it's not gone. 
there anywhere there's nerves, I feel like are still part of the, or not, I feel like they are part of your nervous system just in a less concentrated manner. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, you know, the one kind of simple example of that is the experience a lot of people have with like anxiety attacks, right? Where it, it's a very physical sensation, right? Like it, it's very in your body, not, yeah. you know, it, there's obviously a mental component too, but you can, you can see how the, how it goes in one direction, right? From mind to body. Uh, so then you kind of have to assume that there is also this kind of like bi-directional relationship too. It's going the other way as well. Um, yeah. Or people whose stomach gets upset when they're nervous or like before yeah. like speech, like, you know, your hands get sweaty or whatever. Like there's, everybody has different symptoms, but there's so clearly a connection with all of these there, things. There's other weird stuff too. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about gut health and that one in particular seems to be very wild for a lot of these. Oh yeah. Like mental health challenges or disorders. And some of that research around doing, what's it called? Like fecal transplants and stuff. So, you know, transmitting gut bacteria from one person to another and how that can actually affect you know, like mental health and weight loss and all these other things is like pretty wild. Yeah. Um, and apparently Which is like, why? Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, apparently there's a similar effect there for mouth bacteria too. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. Like if you, if you have bad oral health, it can actually affect your mental health, which is kind of interesting to think about too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on the gut health one, that's another reason why the drugs that you take, you know, medical drugs or recreational drugs make a also big difference potentially like in a yeah. compounding way. So like alcohol greatly affects your gut health. And, you know, I could definitely see when you add this part in, I could definitely see there being additional sort of compounding effects of using alcohol, not just, mm -hmm. you know, there's a certain types of drugs, which are physical dependencies, which are, you know, heroin, you know, uh, nicotine, right? Like certain, yeah, certain cocaine. drugs, there is a yeah. physical effect of withdrawal. If you, if you caffeine is probably the most commonly consumed one that has that. Yep. Um, but then alcohol, like they, there's always this, like, I think unless you're an extreme alcoholic or like a real alcoholic, there's not really a physical dependency, but there is this, like, he even talked about it in one of the, I don't think I have it in my notes, but, um, where it's like the cycle of numbing, like kind of drowning out certain thoughts using alcohol. And then it kind of rebounds harder. So you have to consume more alcohol and it creates this like cycle, yeah. um, where you basically become an alcoholic because of that. But I would imagine there's also a gut health component to that because as you're consuming alcohol, you're also affecting your gut chemistry and probably killing off certain species of gut bacteria. And there's, I'm guessing, a negative cycle that that happens there. Almost definitely. Two, two anecdotes on that. You'll probably know one of them. But the first one is that I've noticed that if I am drinking, if I have a bunch of sauerkraut or kimchi beforehand, it seems to like lessen the hangover e effects oh interesting and i've seen some arguments that part of the hangover is just like your gut bacteria getting completely ruined by being poisoned and you can kind of like pre-insulate them by having a bunch of probiotic foods maybe it could be placebo too but it just maybe there's some protective it. some protective yeah. effect yeah because if you think about it you use rubbing alcohol to kill bacteria yeah. So, so. <laughs> um, and then the, the other one on that, that's kind of interesting that you probably know is that if you have like unpasteurized wild fermented beer, it's, it's different. Yeah. It's probiotic. 
Yeah. Like it can actually, yeah. it's like I think it can actually net out to it, be good for your, your like gut health and stuff. And I've noticed if I drink that, I have almost no effect the next day. So there um, was, there was like a six month period where I didn't drink any beer that I did not homebrew. <laughs> cool. And, but I also never drank during that period. I don't think I ever drank more than like three beers at a time. And yeah. Like, so I, there was never really a chance of a hangover, but that's interesting. I've never, uh, thought of it that way but you're right there is like also like a kombucha e aspect to like you know naturally fermented beer well, and it versus, tastes totally different yeah. it's like a totally different oh yeah drink. yeah oh yeah it's like sour there's like a mm-hmm. sour component very sour yeah 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 whereas like uh commercial beer normal beer that people would drink is uh, you know almost like bread slash candy. bread water yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of sugar in it um yeah to create that sweet, like good tasting profile. I mean, I think like certain beers, like the weirdly, uh, the commercial lagers are actually not that bad for you because they, they're kind of brewed to have that dry taste Mm. to them. So they actually don't have much residual sugar. The beers that have the most residual sugar are surprisingly actually IPAs because they need a lot of sweetness to balance out all the bitterness of the hops without it getting probably especially a hazy or something. Oh, the hazy ones are like sugar bombs. Yeah. (laughs) Like they're probably, it depends on which one, obviously, but I think like I've seen some of them be like 300 calories for like a 12 ounce <laughs> can of beer. <laughs> Whereas like for comparison's sake, um, I think a Corona is like around 130 for, for yeah, the same exactly. size. So it's like, a, you know, almost like three Coronas and twice as much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Easily twice, probably like two and a half is probably where it nets out to be. That's but that's, awesome. I mean, yeah, that's, that's just like, I mean, I like craft beer, but it's just, you have to be careful with it. Because um, yeah. it's always higher calorie. I've gotten so. into sourdough in the last. Oh yeah, I've uh, seen the. I've actually been looking at your tweets and wanting to do a fermentation episode. Oh yeah, we should we should definitely think about that. That would be fun yeah. to do. Because there's so many angles to it. Like with the sourdough, did you get a starter from somebody, or did you just do like a wild starter? Yeah, no, I I just did the the spontaneous uh, fermentation. Where I mean, it's because it's there's yeast on everything. Right. Like right. your hands have yeast, there's yeast in the air, it's everywhere. And so if you just have like a good flour and mix it with water and leave it on your counter for a few days, it'll turn into a sourdough starter. So, so. is it like about creating the right environment to attract the right kind of yeast? Is it like by doing like doing it the right way, you're attracting the right kind of yeast to grow in there? Because I know for beer, at least what they say is like for the wild beers, there are yeast that will that can kind of colonize those uh, that beer that or it's not even beer yet it's wort but like the 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 uh, yeast that come might not be the right flavor profile you're looking for mm. so it's all about kind of like prepping it the right way so that you're attracting the right type of yeast but it could be for sourdough it just doesn't matter as much you know it, I don't I'm know. sure it does you know I like I, one thing I want to try is putting it outside versus inside. Oh, that's Especially cool. when it's warmer. Cause I think that yeah. would obviously attract a very different uh, set of yeast. And we don't really use harsh chemicals and stuff in our house ever. So it's probably mostly yeast coming off of like us and the house plants and the dogs and stuff. Yeah. But um, actually, I don't know that at all. I don't know where yeast comes the, from. Honestly. There, there's it's a probably brewery, we're tracking it in though. The, the reason but, I say this is there's a brewery in Brussels that like has, it's like 600 years old. It's Cantalone brewing it might even be older than 600 years old so they've rebuilt this building like many times but they've reused the rafters each time because they're mm. convinced and they're wild like this is what they specialize in is like naturally fermented uh beer they don't they don't add yeast to their beer ever it's always yeah. just wild fermented but they're convinced that like their rafters are where the species of <laughs> yeast lives i love that 
And yeah, so to like maintain it, they like all the building is kind of new, but then if you look up, they have uh, these like old, old rafters there and they're like, we're just carrying these with us each time we redo the building. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I didn't do anything special to the environment. I just put it out on the kitchen counter and it fermented. I think the the thing I picked up from Miles is that like the flour is probably the most important component. Yeah. So getting a really good local organic unbleached whatever uh, heirloom wheat to use to feed it really, really helps. And, and then the other big advantage I have is we have a really intense whole house filtration system. Ah, uh, that's so, great water. Yeah. Yeah. We've got like pretty close to pure water coming out of the tap, which I think helps a lot because yeah, normal tap water, you're going to have so much shit in it. Um, yeah. That probably isn't great for it. But yeah, yeah made, well, exactly. Been making pizza yeah. dough and burger buns and loaves, and it's been great. It's really oh, fun. Pictures always make me hungry. <laughs> Beer, yeah, we should do a next. fermentation episode. We should all yeah. do like one fermentation thing and well, then bring it to the episode. Oh, yeah, we could talk that about it. it yeah. It's cool too because it's like that's clearly such an ancient and essential human technology that was the original form of processing food and pasteurizing food and like preventing disease and stuff and like our bodies rely on it yeah and instead of continuing to ferment everything we just went in the opposite direction by like nuking the shit out of it (laughs) and so it's like where whereas historically most of the like dairy and fruits and vegetables you consumed probably would have been like partially fermented now like none of them are yeah um because Which how would you have <laughs> how would you have stored like milk beyond what you know you got from the cow yeah, that couldn't. day? Like yeah. yeah. So no way to store there's no way to store fruits and vegetables. Um there's no way to store meat, right? Yep. But you can cure or ferment or pickle or whatever all of that stuff and it'll last for like literally years. Yeah. Which is just insane. Which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, and you're right, and our bodies probably evolved to use it. Like like we totally. need, we kind of rely on that. And not to mention, we probably destroy our gut way worse than we did in the past too. So it's like, not only are we not replenishing it, we're probably also just like, there's a lot more damage. Yeah. 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 Because also, if you think about what people drank, even the alcohol, right? It was like, liquor is a relatively recent uh, development. Liquor is like a prohibition era thing, right? No, it's a little earlier. They They had it in Europe, but they had it like only in like the New World era, basically. Mm. Like 500 years maybe um well that yeah that's the cool thing about reading you know you hear like about beer wine like, it was beer yeah and wine. yeah yeah <laughs> and, and a very low abv beer yeah. and wine like ancient wines were only three or four percent alcohol or something they're basically yep. like what we'd call today a uh like a farmhouse wine which is like why fun. in all those which is why in like all those greek myths they're like literally always drinking wine yeah and you're like how are they fighting like, totally. <laughs> well yeah and, and not only that but i think it was also traditional to water it down a little bit so you'd be having yeah. you had like a four percent alcohol wine that you then watered down right so it's like two percent like right and you're yeah. probably mostly doing that for like drinking safely yeah like i so it's yeah, very no, because in like the Odyssey and like <laughs> in the Odyssey and in the Iliad, right? Like they're always like, and I think there's like occasional times where they're like, they brought out the strong wine and the strong wine is right, probably like right. the 4% wine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I could, I could sip on a little, you know, two to 4% wine all day. That wouldn't be so bad. Yeah. I think or you'd a be light fine. beer. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'd be okay. Yeah. And probably it's not like they had like a calorie excess at that time. So no, no. Like those little extra calories might've actually been nice. Yeah. For them, yeah. 
All right. Should we talk about the book? I feel like. Yeah. We're both yes. Otherwise, we're going to turn this into the fermentation episode. Yeah, this will be the, the um, episode. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So one other thing we didn't talk about in, when we were just introducing it that I, might be a good starting point um, because he kind of used it to introduce a lot of these concepts was uh, PTSD, like with yeah. veterans. And there was one example I really liked. It's, it's pretty unethical uh, of an experiment to run, at least today, especially, but you know, that's the good thing about history. They didn't have rules back in the day. <laughs> so there, there was um, the experiment I'm talking about is the electric shock for dogs. Yeah. One, and they put them in a cage, right? So they, they had two groups of dogs, one group of dogs that they were shocking, and then another control group that they were not shocking, and they put both in a cage. The dogs who had never been shocked, when the cage door opened, immediately ran away because they obviously didn't want to be in the cage. The dogs who had been shocked uh, inescapably, so they were put in the cage and shocked before, even when the door was wide open, they just lay there whimpering. And because they were just like, they didn't think the, that they could escape. <laughs> I, I, the other important detail is they opened the doors to both of them and then shocked them. Right? Yes. Yes. So yeah, they had yeah. done that before. So basically, essentially, the animals learned that there's no escape. Like you're right. going to be shocked and you can't get out of here. And so even when the environment changed, the facts changed, the door was open now and they were being allowed to escape, they didn't move. And so the kind of the, I guess the learning that he drew from this is like potentially people who are in similar types of situations, like for example, a veteran who went through a, a battle that, you know, kind of scarred them and, and uh, left them with PTSD, even though now they're in, you know, a grocery store in Cincinnati, they're kind of still in that same mental state of being trapped. If they're trapped in like a building with mortars hitting the building or something, right? That's, that's, uh, that's what's kind of scarred them. They're still in that world mentally on one level, even though physically they're not there. Yeah. And it, it highlights something that he explains in more depth later in the book. It is a heat, right? Bessel. I believe so. Yeah. Yep. Let me search. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it is a but, he, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's something he, he talks about later on in the book about how we talk about fight or flight, but there's actually like three levels to it. And it explains why the same things can happen to people. And some of them are totally fine, but others get this internalized sort of like traumatic reaction to it. Um, and, and the dogs are a good example of this where he says, you know, when something happens, when we feel threatened, we start off on the first level, which is social engagement. So we call out for help or support, uh, you know, our community helps us, our parents help us, like somebody help us absolve the threat or like handle the situation. Uh, but then if we can't get social help, we go down to the next level, which is the fight or flight response. And if you're able to fight back against the threat and defend yourself, or you're able to fly and run away, then it's not as good as getting, you know, the community support, but you're still handling it, right? Like it's still not going to leave quite the same imprint, but if you're trapped or you're powerless and you can't do either, he says that the organism tries to preserve itself by shutting down and expending as little energy as possible. We're then in a state of freeze or collapse. And it, it's kind of like those situations where you can't get any help and you can't fight back or run away where all you can do is just like collapse that seem to leave those, you know, really terrific imprints. 
And I hadn't seen it broken out that way before. Same. You, I think you always just hear about like fight or flight. And this is a much more nuanced way of looking at it. And it, it helps explain something like, I'm I'm sure you have seen this these data too, but like during wars, suicide rates go down. Have you seen this? I've seen this, like, yep. yep. Yeah. And uh, so, and it, it helps answer this question too of like, And this was one of the questions I had reading the book and I've always had about this kind of like discourse around trauma is if you think about like historically, this should be the least traumatic period to be a human, like in general, right? Like, yeah, you always see those things as the best time to to be living. Yeah. So it's like, why would mental health be getting worse? Right. Because it, it does seem to be getting worse. I, I think that there's, one, this increased awareness about it. But we also know that, like, suicide rates are going up for teenagers and, you know, and for adults, particularly, like, middle-aged men. Um, and so it's kind of like, okay, like, how does that make any sense? Like, how do you square that circle? And, like, this really helps elucidate it, which is, like, you could actually live in a less traumatic environment. But if you have no social support, and you feel powerless to do anything against it, it will feel way, way worse. Like it would almost be better to be like fighting in a war with your friends and being surrounded by death, but being very emotionally supported, um, you know, assuming you're not getting stuck in the worst of it. No, um, but that's kind of how we're wired, I think, because yeah. you have purpose in that scenario. I, I just never one, really... Yeah. I'd never thought about it this way before that like we can probably handle an incredible amount of horrific things happening if we have social support and And we have, yeah, and we have like throughout history. Yeah. But it's really this, like when you're alone and powerless and feel powerless, like then it It, really, it's also why I I see like people gravitating to things they might not even necessarily agree with Mm -hmm. on left or right on the left or right. Right. It's like, it's more, um, it's like a social support. Thing where it's like, oh, these people like vaguely might agree with one of my opinions, but I'm going to use that as like a wedge to have like friends now. Yeah. It's that isolation. That's the, I think the worst part. Well, you, you always hear that about uh, like gangs and joining gangs too. Oh yeah. It's he like, talked about that in the book. Yeah. As well. like yeah. Young boys who grow up without, especially like uh, paternal, like fatherly support, right? Like it, it's better to have that connection and feel like you have it even at the expense of, you know, having to like beat somebody up or do illegal shit than it is to feel alone and isolated. Like people will make, and they do make that trade every day. Yeah. Right. Like these, this need for social support seems so fundamental to being able to process life. Um, And I don't know if we've talked about it here before or not, but, uh, and this isn't my idea, but I can't remember who I got it from. But like the rise of therapy, I think is another example of this. Whereas like, or where I think historically you, you had people in your community that you used as your therapists, right? You, you had an uncle or an aunt or a, an elder or a friend's parents or something who you could like confide the harder stuff in and get that support from. And we like don't have that anymore. And so it's kind of you have rituals. I think there's like religious rituals as well. Yeah, kind of tie into that, you know, also. Totally, yeah, um, like confession and things like that. Confession or even things like, like I know in, uh, and I'm obviously not Jewish, but 
they like they have for example like grieving rituals around mm-hmm. i think it's like 40 days i forget what it's called but sitting shiva yes yeah yeah after somebody passes or maybe it's seven uh i don't know i've seen is something else the 40, 40 day one maybe it's islam yeah maybe it's not maybe it's islam. yeah sitting shiva is seven days yeah uh 40 day grieving anyway there's but there's yeah 40 day grieving is islam yeah ha. you're right Yes, you were correct. And <laughs> Eastern Orthodox, actually. Yeah. Well, that kind of makes sense. There's got to be a lot of overlap between Eastern Orthodox Christianity and Islam, right? Yeah, interesting. But it's like, I guess where, where I was just going with that is like, there are religious rituals as well that help you kind of externalize that grief a little bit. And whereas, yeah. you know, right now, and also the other thing that ties into this is like, we have a very materialistic view of the world today versus how we viewed it in the past. And like, you're not part of this bigger story. If you have a very atheistic, materialistic view on life, it's just like, oh, like life is horrible. It sucks. And like, that's it. But you're not part of this bigger story of like, you know, depending on the religion, like God versus the devil or like good versus evil or, um, you know, eternal salvation versus eternal damnation, right? Like there's, depending on the different belief system that created some of that, uh, camaraderie, I guess, even between you and other people. So that was also in itself a, so a support system. Totally. It, it gave some meaning or ability to like interpret and find meaning is not the right word, but uh, at least utility for bad things happening. Right. Or, or yeah, even and then find I, support I, for them. Yeah. And then the other part is like he uses even this is later on in the book, but um, he, he talks about things like singing and other sorts of activities as being like yoga and meditation stuff as being ways to get out of this cycle, this sort of like uh, this trauma cycle and process the trauma physically. And if you think about a lot of rituals and, and religions, singing is a big part of it. Like meditation yeah. and prayer have a lot of similarities, right? And so you almost might have had some of these trauma, I don't know, uh, resolving tools that were just sort of tied up or bundled with religion. And now that, you know, for a lot of people, they don't have that, you know, they've lost some of that processing tool. Yeah. They've lost that processing tool. So yeah, that could be another factor here. It's a very interesting way to think about the world today is that even though it's objectively better, it might be subjectively worse. Yeah. I mean, just like we have, I mean, I think there's those things that'll say like the richest person in like 1850 had less than like someone on welfare in the US, you know, in 2023, like for example, running water, toilets, like all this stuff, right? TVs, internet, you know, they obviously didn't have that stuff back then, but you're right. Subjectively, it's very hard to say, like, are we actually better off or not? Um, The therapy thing is also interesting because he, my interpretation of his, because he didn't say he didn't, outright say like, oh, therapy isn't a useful thing. He caveated it a lot saying therapy is a useful tool, but it's not the only tool. And it's also possibly not the most effective tool for these types of things that he's talking about in the book, like trauma related things. Yeah, he's basically, he, so one, one core point just before we move on is like, oh, go ahead. is he brought up that you don't process trauma the same way you process language. So talking about these events becomes any traumatic event becomes really difficult. And in some people, they just blot it out completely from their rational processing side of, you know, their sort of uh, frontal cortex part of their brain, you know, their consciousness, 
and it becomes like a repressed memory. In other people, it's like they've created a cover story that they can tell other people, but it's like it's like a safe version of the story that of, of what actually happened. Um, and so his point was, you know, therapy can be a useful tool, but it's certainly not the only way or, or, you know, in his, at least what I, how I read it, it was just one of many tools, yeah. but it wasn't like, he wasn't saying, Oh, you need to go to therapy for this. And that'll be how you solve it. It's like, this is one way that thing that can help, but it's also, he gave a lot of caveats of like, it can be difficult to yeah, even he, talk about it. I think he was trying to be critical without being too critical like i got yeah. the sense that he feels like it's presented as too much of a panacea and like, that's what that's the sense everyone needs to be going to therapy right like actually i had this conversation with my therapist at one point because he like he was annoyed by it too yeah uh, and like I, I think that there is that kind of like that that common discourse right that like oh like have you seen those ads uh, i can't remember which company it was for what, like Talkspace or something like that it was it was one of them and it was like three women at brunch and one of them just got back from a first date and they were asking her about it. And she's saying like, Oh, you know, this good thing and this good thing and this good thing, but he doesn't do therapy. And then the other two are like, Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it was sort of like, Oh yeah. Like, obvi- it, it, <laughs> and uh, I, th- I think well, it got kind of rightly ridiculed, but, there is a little bit of that, I think, vibe going around. Yeah, I, I've seen that too. Yeah, I think there's also a big difference between, and, and I'm not currently doing it, but I have done it in the past. Like, I, I don't think, I think there is a big difference. Sorry, take a step back. I wouldn't even use this word like doing therapy. Like, it's like a very yeah. weird way to say it because I think there's a big difference between just like going and like talking to somebody versus, and that I'm, I'm not like knocking that. Maybe that helps a lot of people. But then there's also like the doing the work part, which is painful. The self-reflection can be very painful uh, and just like not comfortable at all. And I think like there is a big difference between doing it and like doing it. You know, they aren't the same. Well, and I think it it should be thought of a lot like physical therapy, right? Where Mm, the the goal of a physical therapist is to rehabilitate you and get you out of PT. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people treat it more like uh something that you just do forever right yeah yeah um and you know I'd, yeah which, i'd be which open is, to think, being wrong about this but it does feel like that's not how it should be approached and i think going back to the like what yeah, you really maybe want it's like is a to gym find, for some people too like maybe they need to go yeah. back and like you know continue doing it i but i think like my, my point was more just that there's a difference between just going and like yeah going just because oh i did my talk space appointment this week versus like truly trying and and i guess nobody would really know that except for you like that's an individual thing it's right. just that you're right it's become like this almost like uh it, like uh, what's the right word for it but it's just like a, something you use to like there, there's like a signal there's a version a signaling yeah thing. yes there's a version of it that's the equivalent of going to the gym and walking on the treadmill for 20 minutes taking a selfie yes. and leaving yes right yes, <laughs> like, yes. so okay yeah. you went to the gym but it's like if you've been doing that for years and you're not seeing results then it's kind of right like, right which i feel like is kind of you know i'm i'm, I'm over interpreting him here but i i got the sense that like he cares so deeply about helping people that it's probably very frustrating to see people who need help doing like things for years that aren't actually making serious progress on the underlying issues. 
Yeah, because from some of the stories, it seems like he's really seen what can happen, like how much someone's life can improve yeah. if they can get these issues resolved. And I mean, it, that was like a major thing that I, I took away, even just big picture from this book, was there were so many stories of people who something happened to them when they were three years old, five years old, you know, seven years old. And it just like, it took them, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, this is only the stories in the book, but like the stories that got resolved took them 40 years, 35 years, you know, the next 35 years of their life to resolve these issues. And until they resolved them, they were like completely unproductive members of society, or they were maybe productive in one level, but then they were like a terror to their family on the other level. Yeah. And it's just really like, I mean, there's two things that come out of it. One is, you know, these things that happen to people early in their life just have compounding effects for a long time. And then the second thing is like how many people who have had, you know, that are in jail or like have, you know, had their lives, you know, or they are just a mess. How many of them are a mess because of things that might have happened to them, you know, many years ago that are just unresolved? Yeah, it was very hopeful, I found. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know, we used to not understand this at all. We're understanding it better. The tools are getting better. People can heal from this, even ones in, you know, really terrible situations. And it, it felt too like there's there's kind of this spectrum to it. Right. And uh I don't know, like talk trauma feels kind of like an icky buzzword right now, at least to me, where like I, I shut off a little bit when it, somebody on TikTok or whatever starts talking about like, oh, you know, trauma, this trauma, that. And it's like, it, I kind of feel that way about like the overuse of like neurodivergent too. Yeah. It's like any, anybody with a little quirk in their personality thinks that, you know, that means they're like, they have some on sort the spectrum of, or something. yeah, on the spectrum. Yeah. Something. It's like, it's a little insulting to people who do actually struggle with like yeah. not being able to read <laughs> emotional cues. Um, but, it, you know, I think the, the steel man of that is, he is kind of suggesting that, okay, there are these people who have these horrible, awful war memories, but also if you had just a, a very emotionally absent parent growing up that can leave a certain imprint on you that you may be a little oblivious to and need to like work on later on in life if you want to heal from it. Yep. And so there is, there is kind of this, this spectrum of emotional imprints, which I, I don't know. I, I like that a little bit more than the word trauma, at least in this context, because that maybe just because that word's been so overused in like self-help social media land now. Yeah. Um, but talking about it in kind of that like spectrum sense of uh, basically everybody has probably something that rides with them to some extent that you can see manifest in your like feelings, reactions that you can work on. Yeah, yeah, that you can work on. There was that one story he had of the lady who was like extremely uh, critical. And mm. she realized she was literally doing like exactly what her mom did. Mm -hmm. Like she had basically like this voice in her head that was like constantly criticizing everything. Like he was like, oh, like she must have criticized, you know, my office five times before this <laughs> session started. Like without even realizing what she was doing, she was just doing it. And that was her way of reacting when she was like nervous or like a little anxious. And she basically had this like voice that she would outwardly express, but also lived in her head and was self-critical that had basically just like internalized her mother. And yeah. um, I, I think probably to a certain extent, we all have that 
you know, that we've, I mean, every, every human obviously gets imprinted on one level or another. And I guess one question I'd have for you that applies to you, not me is like, how do you think about some of this stuff as like a parent Mm -hmm. when you're, I mean, I'm sure that (laughs) sent you some thoughts that were just like, you know, that, uh, I don't know. I'm sure there's like, you're going to imprint your child regardless, like no matter what you do, but I'm curious if this like, no, at least the awareness of this influences you. Yeah. It, and this was the interesting thing, looking at some of the highlights you pulled out versus some of the highlights I pulled out. And I definitely highlighted the most stuff in the parenting like section and talking about kids because one thing that, you know, I think like everybody goes through when they have kids is they start thinking about like, okay, what do my parents do really well? And what did they like not do as well? And then what do I want to like try to be better about with my kids? Because you know, hope, hopefully you have that realization because I think a lot of people, unfortunately, just like continue the bad patterns they inherited from their parents and then yeah. passes on to their kids, right? And he, he talks about that a lot, right? Hurt people hurt people. And if you grew up with an abusive parent, you're more likely to be abusive and you know, kind of all these things. And, you know, I didn't grow up with any of that, thankfully, but I, you know, my parents did have some behaviors that I maybe wish they hadn't had when I was growing up. And uh, you know, thinking about like, okay, you know, how do I try to be better at those so that I hopefully don't pass them on? Because it that example of the, you know, she being really critical and it's like, oh, well, her mom was really critical, right? Like, I think this is a pretty common pattern is that the you know, often your worst traits and the things that annoy you most in other people like you probably manifest as well and mm. are probably often the things that you secretly like the least about yourself too. Right. And I feel like generally recognizing that is very helpful. Right. So like, you know, I think everybody gets set off by their family more than they do by their friends and stuff. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, for one, you don't, patience. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, and you also probably select your friends in part because they don't embody some of those things that piss you off about your, your family. But then, you know, you're obviously not going to abandon your family. You're still going to hang out with them. And then they do those little things that set you off. And then I think you realize that you probably do those things too. And I feel like, trying to get in tune with that and try to work out some of those behaviors before my kids are conscious is, it's been a general goal for both Cosette and I, and thankfully we inherited some of the exact same bad behaviors from our parents. So (laughs) we can, we can keep each other honest on them. (laughs) Um, uh, And yeah, no, I don't know. I like it. It's weird though, because you're also right that like you're, you're going to, mess something up right and you just kind of like hope yeah. that it's a it's a small enough thing to not leave lasting damage uh, um, like i'm reading andy dunn's uh book that came out recently burn rate just as like a little side thing i got from the library uh so andy dunn was the uh founder of bonobos okay and he i think like 2016 i want to say they were close to getting acquired and he had like a manic episode and it basically came out that he has like he basically this has happened throughout his life Mm -hmm. uh like manic episode to the point where like he was in the hospital like in a psych ward for weeks 
uh, yeah, CEO of like a unicorn company that was like very prominent New York company or is a you know still a prominent New York company. I think they did end up getting acquired. I don't know what happened. I'm I'm only like 25% of the way in. Where it's relevant to this is he's talking about like his childhood, right? And his parents. And so his mom is Indian, his dad is is white. And so that like caused some tensions or whatever, but it's really like his family background is really interesting, just how he grew up. And so one thing he says about his dad is his dad, like, so he, Andy Dunn is a very competitive person. He even says that's like a big problem of his. If somebody tries, even in like high school, he was like at prom, like some guy like laughed at his car because I had like a mud stain on it. And in the middle of the night, he went and like poured mud inside of that guy's car. Like, because he was, (laughs) he just is like, he doesn't like being challenged, I guess, was like his thing. If somebody challenges his alphaness, essentially. And he's, he's saying this is like a major issue of his. And it's funny because he's talking about his dad and his dad is like the exact opposite. He's like, mm-hmm. my dad is like not competitive at all. My dad was like only happy if I beat him whenever we played chess. And like, it's really interesting. And he's like, I realized later that I'm probably embodying like the opposite trait of my dad because like on purpose because yeah. I didn't because he was actually saying like the passiveness of his dad was a form basically another form of dominance. Like, oh, you can't beat me by beating me because I'm happy that you beat Mm. me essentially Uh, Um, it's just interesting that it's like his dad probably was like you know you always hear stories about the dads who are like hyper competitive and like really hard on their sons and it's like oh you have to win you always have to win and he's like my dad was like literally the opposite of that but he became this way (laughs) that's interesting (laughs) yeah uh i'd be curious to read it because i would have interpreted that differently which is that he never he was never taught how to handle a loss aggression yeah and like yeah oh yeah because you didn't have a model for aggression yeah yeah exactly no one modeled it for him right you know what it actually reminded me of it reminded me of sometimes you see people who didn't grow up like with a father who are almost like overly aggressive yeah because they don't have that moderation like they never had that moderation uh growing up yeah 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 it that that now that we're on this topic that was something that really stood out in those sections was the very seemingly like dominant and clear roles of both parents that were very sex dependent. Mm. And it it's an interesting topic because I feel like it's, you know, it's sort of like a politically risky thing to talk about. Right. Because yeah. I mean, just reading this and based on it, it really seems like Bessel's arguing that it's pretty hard to have an emotionally well-adjusted child without a, male and female role model and without them embodying some of those stereotypical traits for the child. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't couch it at all. Like he, and this book came out in what, 2015, not that long ago, not that long ago. So, you know, we were, we were already, talking about all this stuff obviously and like it came out in 20 uh 2014 yeah which is close enough close enough enough. and i mean people were growing up with you know stay-at-home dads and working moms for decades at this point and i you know there was really no way to read some of these sections without getting the sense that like if you have a working mom who is like working long hours like it will probably mess you up emotionally like and that's a yeah pretty like you know i i feel uncomfortable saying that right yeah but it it, you know i'll just read this passage that i'm thinking of right here 
and I guess it's not so much talking about time. You know, you could you could definitely have a a working mom who still provides these feelings, but uh, he talks about maternal disengagement and misattunement during the first two years of life can lead to disassociative symptoms in early adulthood. Infants who are not truly seen and known by their mothers are at high risk to grow into adolescents who are unable to know and see. So it, it's, it's, it I, feels I like that. what yep. it's saying there is that if your mom just like puts you in daycare and isn't around for those first two years, you, there's like a fundamental developmental cost to that. Yes. Um, which, you know, it, it's like, there's that he says, um, you know, you cope as well as you can by blocking out your mother's neglect and act if it doesn't matter, but your body is likely to remain in a state of high alert prepared to ward off blows, deprivation, or abandonment. Uh, what cannot be communicated to the mother cannot be communicated to the self. Well, Maybe there was the most- that one where like the baby was being, was playing with the mom and then was like uncomfortable, uncomfortable. And the mom didn't like interpret it. And basically like the baby started like crying hysterically because essentially the mom wasn't recognizing the cues. Yeah. That, and then that probably does leave an imprint that it's like, I can't be understood or something. Yeah. But, you know, throughout those sections, there's no discussion of the father having, you know, like, the, right. It, it's the father does still have these like important impacts. And he talks about that too. But when he's talking about this like emotional seeing and like being able to, and, you know, these are, if you're talking about like feminine and masculine energy, right. And, and some of that stuff, you, would, these are typically traits that you would put in the like feminine energy category. For sure. Yeah. And it, to hear it from, such a like serious academic and not a like woo woo spirituality Instagram account. I, it was, it was surprising. It was like interesting, right? Because it does feel like it goes against some of the discourse around parenting today. And I, I don't know, like I, I'm not going to say it's hundred percent right or wrong. I just, it was interesting to see it. Well, to your point about the political correctness of this thought, he actually, I don't know if you looked up the author, he had a controversy in 2017. He was actually, so he's at this, or he was at this thing called the Trauma Center, right? Which he Mm -hmm. talks about in the book. He was terminated in 2017 by the parent company due to allegations of creating a hostile work environment that allowed him to engage in abusive practices, particularly against women. That was like the, uh, and then, no, but so here's the thing though. He uh, so the entire executive team of the trauma center unanimously protested this termination and all senior members resigned. Wow. In protest. And then he sued the Justice Resource Institute, which is the parent organization, um, for several counts of action, including misrepresentation and defamation. The suit ended in a non-disclosure agreement and was settled out of court. And he used the funds one in his settlement to found a new organization called the Trauma Research Foundation. So he won the lawsuit. He got wrongfully terminated, defamation, all this stuff. And then I guess got some undisclosed sum of money for that and then used the funds to start a new organization. But to your point about the political correctness, I actually could see like that being... I mean, nobody knows what exactly happened because it was a non-disclosure agreement, but um, I could see that actually being something that like offended some people working there who were younger, you know, in their twenties or whatever, and kind of use that against him. Cause he's yeah. 80 years old now. I mean, he's not a young guy, so he's, uh, I mean, he's not pulling any punches even in the book. Like he is. Yeah. 
and the, the the thing is actually that's really interesting just on this like woke topic is if you actually read the conclusion or the epilogue he's very left-wing right like he's, he is extremely he's, he's not like a <laughs> yeah he's not like a conservative yeah. pundit or something no like, he's like a he was like railing against the u.s for not having universal health care totally like, i mean there are a couple other points in there guns i think was another one like yeah it felt very like democratic like, socialist like, like very bernie really, supporter really type wanted guy. the state to come in and fix this stuff yeah yes very and, bernie supporter guy so my point is like he's not like i mean this is not like a conservative guy no making no. these points yeah but like he's clearly a scientist. I mean, whatever his political yeah. views are, he's clearly like treating it as a science. It's like that's how it felt throughout the book that he's not totally. like, you know, just trying to shove his viewpoints down your throat. I mean, it's very, at least like it felt scientific. At least I mean, I don't. I'm always hesitate with psychology or, or psychiatry because it's there's so much that's unreplicated, yeah. <laughs> unreplicated over the years. So I do always take it with a grain of salt. But I don't think he's even. I a think lot this of this is very different, though. Yeah, yes. yeah, because it's yeah. like he's he's not talking about like a random controlled experiment where like right. oh people walked slower after hearing about old people, <laughs> right? It's like no, 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 no. Like this, you know, person, you know, saw an entire village burn down in Vietnam and watched children run around screaming and was like able to get over it through these specific yeah. practices, right? Like it, it's a yeah. totally different world of like mental science, for lack yeah. of a better term. Yeah. And there was one where, uh, one thing like even just anecdotally, like, I, I mean, I don't, I know you mentioned you go to uh, a therapist, but like, you know, I, even for myself. So after my dad passed, there were a lot of things that I was struggling with and just hard to like take action again after a couple of years of just not really doing much. Um, but two things actually really, uh, three things I would say actually that really helped me, which are all weirdly reflected in this book, which is cool. One was like not talking, like talking to any, like regular, anybody else didn't really help except for I joined a support group of people who had gone through like something pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was online. Like it wasn't in person as people were spread out all over. And um, I did that for a few months and actually it was really, really helpful up to a point. And then at, after a certain point, it was like, okay, I'm not really getting anything more out of this. So I left, but to have those few months in that group of people who could really relate to and not feel like you are some kind of alien, you know, who yeah. there's nobody else in this world who's gone through this. turns out there's a lot of people that was really helpful. Another thing was talking to like a peer who I didn't know had gone through something similar. So Eric Jorgensen, who we've had on the show before, mm-hmm. um, a couple of years prior to that had actually like his dad had passed in a somewhat similar fashion. Um, and just having him almost as like a coach, he kind of coached me through the process of like, here's what's going to happen. This is how you're going to feel. This is how you're going to feel next. Like, this is how yeah. you're going to feel. It was actually super helpful because a lot of those things happened. Like he even... He sent me a really nice email, uh, maybe a couple days after it happened, and with just like, this sucks. It's the club nobody wants to be in, but here's like all these things that are going to happen. And one of those things just, I mean, it was a long email, but one thing that always sticks in my mind is he's like, the first time you do something fun, whether it's in a month or two months or three months, whatever, the first time you actually feel like you're having fun, it's going to be immediately followed by a feeling of guilt. Like, why am I having fun? How come I'm allowed to have fun? Right. And literally that happened. And that's just like one example, but Eric was awesome. Um, and then the third thing actually was movement, like going to the gym very regularly, like six times a week. And then the seventh day was also doing something physical, but just not like in the gym was amazing. Like it just helped so, so, so much. Yeah. And it, as much as it sucked to get started with going back to the gym after like a couple of years, it was just, it, that helped me so much Just movement. Yeah. Um, so those three things were like all reflected in this book. 
And they all, you know, really helped. I actually tried therapy for it as well. And I think I probably could try, I could have tried harder on finding like the right therapist, but then I found the support group and it kind of did that job for me. So I didn't yeah. really continue down the the therapy path. Cause I think I'm, at least you, you, you've been doing it longer. I mean, I think the, at least from what people have told me, it really matters who you're working with. Yeah. It's not just like, Oh, I go to a generic therapist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The, the point about movement is interesting too, because I've sort of always felt this way that like, at least in a quarter of situations, like you don't need to talk about it. Like you need to go exercise. 100%. (laughs) Probably more than a quarter. Right. Uh, Well, it always helps. I feel like it's not like, uh, yeah, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but it, changes how you feel about it. I do. I I think that for sure. And then the other thing that I also think it it ties to, like, at least for me is I was feeling really stuck. Like it was like, you know, two years of, of watching somebody like basically wither away and die is really hard because no matter what you do, it always gets worse. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like you're, you've almost trained your brain that nothing you do is going to help. That's like the imprint that you've created for yourself kind of reminds me of the dog situation that he was talking about. And so the the cool thing about exercise in general, I mean, I, I don't want to like universally apply this, but at least in my experience, if you go and you just do the stuff that you're supposed to do, you will see progress. And yeah. that kind of retrains your brain that like, oh, doing these things actually can result in positive outcomes. And you kind of like get re um, you get rewired that like, oh, doing the right things actually can lead to good things. And that I think applied everywhere else too. Um, so exercise I would, is I, very like, fair. Yes, it's just you versus whatever thing you're doing. If you're running, yeah. it's like you versus the distance, or you on the bike, or you in the barbell. Like it's it's all uh, it's it's kind of mer- uh, like a meritocracy in that sense. Yeah, totally. You can't blame anybody else, right? There's nobody no, else no. The you equation. either did the work or you didn't. Yeah, if you're like, I'm going to go run three miles and you stop at mile two, it's not like, oh, like their defense was playing so well today. So I couldn't yeah, get yeah. to the third mile. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's like a, it kind of goes back to his concept of like rewiring your brain. I thought that the exercise was, it was probably partially about the exercise. Like when you feel better, like you're physically feeling better, you probably emotionally feel better. I'm sure there's definitely an angle to that as well. But it was also the retraining of like, you do these things good outcomes can happen or will happen, not can happen. They will happen. I think that part's really interesting as well. I think like, you know, one, one thing I would say for anybody who wants to read the book is, and we were talking about this before, don't probably don't do the audio book. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> like, how a deal did I, that. Yeah. I mean, props. There's a lot of stories that well, you yeah, want a lot to of stories past. And, yeah. I mean, after a certain yeah. point, it's just like, okay, I can't keep reading all of these. I can't read about another like, incest thing yeah. or rape or i mean it's i think reading a few of them is is helpful like to understand this like sheer magnitude of things people do go through and yeah really puts a lot of problems in perspective i'll be honest like some of these stories are, are horrific but after like the 10th one you're just like i yeah. don't know if i want to read yeah, i don't know if i can get through this book if i keep reading all yeah. of these yeah so, so i, I like started that... skipping ahead sometimes in those yeah. sections yeah I was going to say that and being willing to like skim through some chapters because I do feel like he he put everything into one book, which is great. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff. And so there's some chapters that are kind of like talking about random specific treatments that may or may not work. And I learned a lot in the beginning and then in 
random chapters throughout based on where I was most interested. So, you would just skip ahead based on that. Yeah, yeah. There like were two ones, two, two, the, these therapies that you're talking about, there's two that kind of were interesting to me and I mm-hmm. spent more time on those chapters. The other ones I was like, eh, you know, like like the yoga one, I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like understand, like singing. Like I would read like the enough to get the gist of it. But I wouldn't necessarily read like every study he's talking about. Yeah. Because um, to your point, he made it a very comprehensive book. Well, two of the therapies I did want to actually touch on were EMDR was one, um, which is basically rapid eye movement yeah. as a way to, I guess, get relief from anxiety. And it tied to sleep, right? Because they were saying one of the reasons like people can uh, develop mental health issues is lack of sleep. Well, you also do rapid eye movement while you're sleeping. And so... You know, those two things probably are very, you're probably processing a lot of these, you know, traumatic memories or difficult memories or whatever they are while you sleep. Yeah. So combining that with lack of sleep is probably not a good recipe. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's probably something with dreams there too, because I think you dream when you're in REM sleep as well, right? Yeah. Yep. So maybe that's like a, I mean, people have always talked about like, what's the evolutionary purpose of dreams? Dogs dream, humans dream, like, yeah, there's some Why? sort of processing going on during that period for sure. Yeah, because otherwise you probably think of it as like a waste of energy. Like why is your body expending energy to create these fake images essentially? Yeah, why is it hallucinations? <laughs> yeah, but there's got to be a... I mean, that's the thing about evolution, right? It's like most of these things that exist... I mean, pretty much everything that exists that has been passed down to you at this point, it like did exist for a reason, like whether that reason still applies or not. Yeah. Well, it it survived. It survived. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it had some kind of like the dreaming thing, right? You could imagine there are people who didn't dream, you know, whatever trait it is to not dream, you know, probably died out since most people dream, you know, or like not died out, but is less prominent. I'm sure there are people who don't dream, but right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other one that I that struck me because of another book that I've read was the book was the breathing stuff, like that book. Oh Breathe. yeah, have you read that? Yeah, yeah, by James. Forget Nestor. the author, James Nestor. Yes, yeah, great yeah. book, great book. And then his other book, Deep, is really interesting too, which he wrote that oh. actually led him to write Breathe. Okay. Deep is about basically people who do uh, free diving, free diving? So without. Yeah, and it's like they can hold their breath for like eight, nine, ten minutes. Yeah, <laughs> and like, so crazy. One of the hilarious things about that book is all these people he's interviewing and talking to are all smokers. And they're like holding their... Yeah, he's like, you go to a free diving competition and everyone's smoking between rounds. No way. But I bet like, like his theory was... they're or used cigarettes? Cigarettes. His, and a lot of them are French and like European and stuff. Like a lot of these guys. So crazy. His, his theory was their, their bodies have essentially adapted to being less oxygenated. Oh, and then because they smoke so much because they smoke and then they're just like more able to handle that high CO2 environment of uh, <laughs> of when they're free diving. So anyway, he had like some speculation on that. I don't think there was anything proven. So that's just pure speculation. But anyway, that book's a great book. But Breathe was really interesting because I read it actually around the same time that, you know, I was kind of in my recovery period. And I, I did uh, and I still do sometimes like the Wim Hof breathing stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was actually super helpful. Like, I, I don't know what it, it almost was like a fast forwarded meditation, if that yeah. makes sense. It only takes 10 minutes, at least the version that I do it takes 10 minutes. But by the end of that, you actually feel kind of how you would feel at the end of like, like, I don't actively meditate anymore, but um, how you would feel after like 30, 40 minutes of meditating. Cool. Like you're in this weird, like not weird, but you're in this very like calm state and it involves breath holds and like hyper oxygenation followed by breath holds. Um, 
for about 10 minutes. It's like three yeah. cycles, essentially. I've heard it. really good things about it. I've just never played around with it. Yeah, it's like a quick thing to try. There's like the YouTube video and then I mean, we can link to that in the show notes. And um, But it was interesting like what he was talking about because I every time I do it, I find myself being less anxious like yeah. days later even. Huh. So it's just like, I don't know. It almost feels like I do meditate even though I don't really meditate. It's like almost a hack. I don't know. Yeah. I, there's probably additional benefits to meditation that I'm not getting, whatever. But this Wim Hof breathing stuff seems uh, like it is it is useful. At least it has been for me. Sweet. Yeah, it was cool. They were talking about doing that with kids. There's actually a preschool that we toured here in Austin that like focuses on doing that for two and three year olds. So it teaches them, it teaches them, you know, aside from normal things, it also does like basic breath work and meditation and yoga and communicating about feelings. And so it teaches kids when they get that's amazing, ramped up and angry and stuff like, okay, we're going to do some deep breaths. We're going to you know, try to re-regulate ourselves. Then we're going to talk about how we're feeling and, you know, what happened to make us feel that way. And it was really funny going there and touring it and then seeing the teachers interact with the kids. And I was like, these two-year-olds know how to talk about their feelings better than like most adults. <laughs> most, <I think>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually amazing because yeah. I mean, I, like think about how much more useful that is than some of the other things you learned in school. Yeah. And I, I really <laughs> liked the teacher there. The teachers were really funny too. They were like, yeah, we don't do like worksheets and Stupid shit like that. <laughs> Teach them stuff that, that's actually useful, like being able to talk about your feelings and I hope you know, that goes mainstream. Learn and figure things out. I hope that I goes hope mainstream because so. that's like, yeah. I mean, that's that would be such a useful skill. I mean, even just in terms of learning it that early, where yeah. it becomes it becomes much more instinctual. You know, oh, I'm like anxious. I should be breathing this way. It's like it doesn't even become a conscious thought. It's just. Uh, something that's ingrained when you learn it at two years old. Yeah. And there's so many things that you honestly don't need to learn at that oh, age. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you don't really need to learn much science. You don't need to learn math. You don't need to learn like history. You just need to learn how to be like a functioning person, how to learn itself, right? How to yes. communicate. All of those how things. How to read are, well. Like, yeah, yes. Yeah, such higher leverage funded. skills than doing a addition or subtraction worksheet when you're four. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is so much more useful. And I think like, um, the funny thing in that breathe book, which you probably remember from it, since you read it, like a lot of how we breathe wrong is kind of learned at an early age. Yeah. Like it's not. So yeah, I think it was like, I forget which it, it was some native American tribe that like, that's a huge part yeah, they, of their they, almost like child yes they hold they the pinch kids the mouths of infants yep. cosette and i did that <laughs> smart <laughs> when, honestly yeah, smart. <laughs> when she was sleeping if we saw her mouth breathing we would just like pinch her lips shut <laughs> i mean the benefits are just so uh clear yeah to not do i mean or benefits and then the harms of of the mouth breathing are so even, clear that it's like i mean even crazy stuff like the shape of your jaw and your face mm-hmm. it, there's a wild there's a book in my Q, uh, I think it's called Jaws or something, but it's, I, I don't, that's not correct. It's called something else, but it's about Jaws. <laughs> and um, I haven't read it yet. And, but just from what it had been described to me as, it's like why a lot of uh, orthodontist, like the whole orthodontist field and misshapen, like having too many teeth for your jaw is actually yeah. like, there's multiple factors, but I think one of the things they were talking about was diet. And then the way diet plays into it is like, you're not chewing as much as you probably would have in right. the past. So your jaw muscles are just much slacker. 
And then um, the other piece was the breathing, to your point. Like mouth breathing versus nose breathing, your the shape of your jaw changes significantly. It's so crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy how much that would affect it. But yeah, it's uh, that book, Breathe, if somebody hasn't read it, highly, highly recommend. It's well, re- well written and um, really enjoyable. All right. Should we wrap it up? Yeah, I think that's about it. We're still working on our rebrand. So TBD yep. on that. It's coming. <laughs> But it's coming. The deal had some sick mocks though. So yeah, I'm excited. I think the only thing we need to add to that is like a little bit of fun. Yeah. Like some little fun element. That was, I couldn't figure out what that could be besides maybe like some apes and aquatic apes in the background. Uh, <laughs> we'll think of something. But we'll think of something. We'll think of something. Yeah. But yeah, the rebrand is coming. We will hopefully have something on that soon. What's the next book? The next book is Art of War. Art of War. That's right. Okay. I don't know what we have after that. That's yeah. Uh, we have to think of something after. I think who's next to pick the in between one? Is it a, a deal? Probably or? a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he'll pick an audiobook. <laughs> 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 yeah, we'll have to see what he wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you leave a review on Spotify, which is one click, or on Apple. Uh, where you have to write something. So Apple makes you do a little bit more work. We've been getting more Spotify reviews though. I think yeah, that's great. They've more done a good job making Spotify. it easy. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I think they've done a good job making like the reviews easy too because you don't have to yeah, write anything. Nice. Just click a stars. But they don't let you do it if you don't listen there. So right. if you listen on a, on a different you app. listen to a couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. They make you do that. So you can't just go in and like it or uh, put a five-star review if you don't listen there. Yep. <laughs> uh, you can also help support us on Fountain or any other podcast 2.0 app. You can send us sats uh, via streaming, which is just basically sending us a certain amount of Bitcoin per minute that you actually listen to the show. Or you can do like a boost, which is kind of like a tip uh, that you could do anytime, you know, even without listening to the show. You can just send us money. We'd be happy. And yeah, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. I'm at the real Neil S. Oh, and send this episode to one friend who you think would enjoy it. Yes. That's the most important thing. We got to lead that. With helps that helps a lot. Yeah. yeah, that helps a lot. That helps a lot. I have heard that how most people hear about it. Somebody yep. tells them about it or, or they came across one of your notes. Yeah, or yeah. they come across one of your notes pages. That helps And then too. they're like, yeah. oh, there's an episode about this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time. With see you guys next time. More.